This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Mona Lena Crook, who's the author of Violence Against Women in Politics. This was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press, and it is a deep dive into this question about violence against women in politics, how we've come to understand this concept and this phenomena, um, and what its ultimate aim is, as well as charting um, the phenomenon around the globe. But I'm going to let Mona tell us a little bit more about that as we dive into our discussion about her book. First, I'd like to welcome Mona to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Mona. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. Um, so I, I'm just really excited to talk about uh, this book, which came out of my earlier research on electoral gender quotas, which are measures that have been adopted around the world to get more women uh, nominated as candidates and elected to, uh, to political office. And, um, you know, that was... Uh, my, my sort of initial interest in that uh, in that topic was really to understand, you know, um, how they got on the agenda, why they were passed, and how effective they were in getting uh, more women into political office around the world. Um, and after I wrote my first book, I started a new project which tried to understand what quotas had meant in a broader sense, um, what kind of effects it had on the types of women who were elected, uh, what those women did once they got into public office, and how their presence really transformed ideas about gender and political leadership. So when I was doing that second project, I... Um, uh, we sort of just had sort of, in terms of that last question about how it transformed ideas of political leadership, I, I thought that um, really anticipated a positive impact, right? That it would break down, you know, associations between men uh, and, and politics and really move us towards a more gender equal political world. Um, but something that was sort of coming up increasingly in the interviews I was doing with women around the world um, you know, they women were talking about resistance and intimidation and harassment and other things that they were facing. Um, what they felt uh, as women um, in in politics. It wasn't just about party politics, but really about uh, resistance to transforming um, the gender nature of of politics. So uh, that's really the reason why I uh, decided to write this book um, and to really understand what that. Uh, what that problem was and why so many women were increasingly talking about this problem, um, you know, in, in all different parts of, of the world. So it's really my effort to, to bring sort of an academic eye to, to this phenomenon that uh, is, is increasingly discussed around the world. 
And, and I certainly wanted to ask you and talk to you about that because as I saw the title of your book and I started to dig into it, of course, my first thought was about Joe Cox. Um, and because that's one of the more recent events in my lifetime where I have sort of seen an outward, outward manifestation of this kind of violence against women in politics. But you take a very long and comparative look and deep dive into the experiences, as you note, of women around the globe. Can you talk about what, to start with, um, what we're categorizing as violence against women in politics and why this is a unique categorization? Okay. Um, so this is really uh, the the question I uh, was have really grappled with um, and and uh, really thought a lot about over the last uh, five to, to six years that I've been working on this question. Um, because one of the, you know, I think early responses to um, to efforts to talk about this problem, we're really to try to dismiss it as, you know, look, if women haven't been in politics, suddenly they're in politics and they're experiencing, you know, pushback and intimidation, harassment. That's just what it is to be a politician, right? So maybe it's, we're seeing people talk about this issue because women are just more present, right? And they're experiencing the things that men have experienced for, for a long time. Um, but I really couldn't escape the fact that so many women that I that I interviewed, um, practitioners uh, uh, um, around the world, were really saying that this was something that had a gender dimension. Um, and as I, you know, delve more deeply into that, I, you know, was looking for frameworks that help explain this, you know, existing frameworks, um, and, and really felt that they were overlooking uh, the gendered aspect of, you know, just the mere fact that women have been largely excluded or absent from these political spaces, right? That itself um, has meant that women's sort of movement into those spaces hasn't just been a seamless one where women taking on the same, you know, experience or status that men have, but that that was a change that, um, uh, you know, certain people were responding to in, in, in a negative sort of way. Um, and so I think this is really the, the starting point. And I think that where um, I uh, really landed in this was to say that, um, well, I guess there were two issues to grapple with. One was the argument that you know, politics is just a hostile space. People, it's just full of conflict, right? That's the nature of political debate. Um, and, you know, political debate is about the theatrical deliverance of violence to the other side. Um, and I thought, well, no, this doesn't seem to just be that, right? Um, and as I went through the political violence literature, the argument about why violence was bad in politics was, okay, so there's some forms of conflict that are democratically valuable, right? The fact that we uh, criticize people for, you know, for their political performances or their policy ideas, right? That's, that's, that contributes to the robustness of, of democracy. But where it becomes a problematic form, right? Where it really becomes violence is when it's about undermining democracy. So work on electoral and uh, political violence often thinks about this as like, you know, when you inflict violence on an opposing side as a way of winning the, I don't know, uh, the battle of ideas, right? So this is about intimidating people who vote for the other party. It's about, you know, death threats against your rival, right? It's about those types of things that are really about trying to win 
that sort of um, democratic contest through force. And I thought, well, that's not what this is either, right? Um, and so what I what I really uh, tried to do was to think about how it was how it was different. Um, and so in my book, I argue that uh, violence against women in politics um, is specifically a uh, phenomenon that is about women's presence in politics. And so while other forms of political violence or, you know, hostility can, you know, be faced by men and women, can, um, you know, it really revolves around competing political ideas. This was a form that was specifically targeted at women, and it was really about pushing women out, excluding women from uh, from politics. And so it was a specific form of gender-based uh, violence. Um, and so what, in the book, I try to um, give us some tools for thinking about how we could illuminate uh, a case where gender is is sort of a driving motivator uh, behind the attacks. And so I, I draw on a hate crimes framework, which is all about thinking about how we could find evidence of bias in a particular uh, action or, or, or set of acts um, that could help us understand when it's not just about uh you know, a, a particular form of, of, of hostility or attack, but it's also about uh, gender-based exclusion. Um, and so this is where I, I separate out what I'm calling violence in politics from violence against women in politics. Uh, but what makes this a very tricky project is the fact that, you know, women who are active in politics experience both of these forms of violence. It's often very difficult to disentangle, right? Like a single experience could have one meaning, but another experience could have a different. Um, both forms of violence could be present in the same sort of act. Um, but I still think it's conceptually very important and helpful to, to think about it because, uh, as I argue, violence against women in politics is another threat uh, to democracy and one that we haven't uh, yet fully recognized or appreciated. And you make that case early on in the book that the the violence against women in politics is really about ultimately trying to push women out of the the public sphere where they were absent for millennia. Um, is that correct? Absolutely. And, and I think this is, um, you know, it kind of raises really interesting question about um, if this is just a form of resistance that's always been there to women's inclusion, is this just sort of the continuation of that exclusion? Or is it a form of, of backlash, right? So is it the idea that now that women are coming into these spaces, it sort of heightens the resistance, right, that that was previously there? And um, I think this is I think it's no, not surprising that uh, we're seeing more discussion of this, um, you know, in the years after quotas have spread so so rapidly around the world, um, because suddenly we do have uh, a lot of challenges to the existing, you know, frameworks of male domination in politics um, that might mean, you know, uh, taking stronger steps to to keep women out. And and again, it's not necessarily that there's a big organized cabal. Um, and, and that's one of the, the points that you make is, is that there's all kinds of different levels of this that are going on and that it's also more of a hidden problem. As you said, you were sort of surprised by the women who were telling you this as you were interviewing them. Can you talk a little bit about why you found this to be somewhat of a hidden problem? Um, yeah, well, I, I, uh, I started... 
my, my starting point for thinking about uh, how to organize the book was to start with what Betty Friedan, who was a very famous second wave uh, feminist in the United States, called the problem with no name. Um, and this idea that women's experiences or the experiences of uh, members of other marginalized groups, their experiences often aren't given a name, right, in a culture that, that marginalizes them. Um, so a lot of the, the work of uh, practitioners, uh, politicians, activists around the world has really been about trying to name this problem. Um, and one of the most fascinating observations I've, I've had, um, and I, it's repeated in some of you know, the early publications by like UN Women and uh, the National Democratic Institute, was that you know, women will say, oh, you know, I don't face this problem. But when you help to define it or give them some concepts, they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> of course, I've, you know, I felt that. But they had sort of, you know, kind of either normalized it as what they would experience as a politician or they would normalize it just as violence that women face more generally, right? Like women in society, we face sexism every single day, um, but you just get so used to it that you don't even really realize it's there, right? And so a lot of this um, this debate is about trying to give give a name, to give some, some concepts to how women really make uh, sense of their experiences. And I think what's so important, just like it was to Betty Friedan, was to say this is not an individual problem. This is a structural systemic problem. This is not about you as, as an individual, but about the fact that people like you haven't been, uh, you know, fully recognized as, as political actors. Um, and, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of different mechanisms for why, why it's remained, you know, a problem with no name. Um, and the very first chapter of the book, I talk about uh, four different kinds of, of gaps or barriers to women's recognition. Um, one is a sort of a cognitive barrier, which is just like, the difficulty in sort of seeing yourself as a sort of victim or a victim of discrimination. And I think that's very powerful uh, in many parts of the world, right? Your sort of self-concept isn't somebody who's, who's victimized. So I think there's definitely a cognitive gap. Um, there's also a political one, uh, which is that many women want to be able to want to speak out about uh, this issue, but uh, they either think it is going to make them look like they're not strong, right? So it kind of undermines the case for seeing them as leaders, um, or they think uh, that it will make their own party look bad. Um, and I think what really... Um, you know, makes it such a, um, I don't know, a sharp, a deep problem is that the uh, the emerging research on this shows that the n- main perpetrators of violence against women in politics are members of women's own political parties uh, or members of their own families. And that's not surprising for somebody who studies violence against women because violence, women experience violence at the hands of people they know. Like that's that's the most common form of of, uh, of violence, right? We're most likely to experience that form of violence. Um, and so, speaking out about violence is often about speaking about out about you know a colleagues or leaders or mentors within your own party. And so, you also have an incentive not to to, to speak out for for that reason. Um, and then there's just, I think a third one has to do with receptivity, right? So you're willing to speak out, but nobody is uh, willing to listen, right? Or they mock your your claims. Um, and we see this even just last week uh, in the wake of the U.S. Capitol insurrection, where Tucker Carlson, who's a you know Fox News uh, uh, reporter, was mocking uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for saying that she was scared during the attacks. Well, she had very good reasons to be to be uh, to 
to be scared because she was, you know, has been targeted for a very long time with different acts of violence uh, uh, against her as as a as a female politician, right? And so this idea of like if you speak out, no one's going to really um, going to listen to you, right? Or willing to to uh, you know to take your your issues seriously. So some women, knowing that's going to happen, don't don't speak out. And then the last one just has to do with resources. And I, I, this was really something that was expressed by women who have been in politics for many, many, many years, uh, often retired politicians. And they say, you know, I knew this was a problem, but who would I tell? Right? <laughs> Either they're the only woman there or there's just no, you know, no office. They weren't really talking about the issue. You don't really have the resources to be able to to do something about it, so you just just remain silent. Um, but what is amazing is the fact that this has really you know shifted with more and more women speaking out, especially as the problem has been named uh, more and more in in public debates. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and in that regard, I mean, I, I just remember some of the issues around when a lot of the Me Too sort of dams burst and and people women said you know i i couldn't complain or i couldn't go someplace to talk about this because the person i have to go to is the one who's doing it um which we've known in terms of a lot of the research on these areas of harassment um for so long that the structure is very difficult to negotiate um but i wanted to ask you also you you structure the book not only with regard to sort of unpacking this concept and and going through some of the difficulties, but you also do it in a really um, nuanced and and complex way, looking at the global South and the global North where women have had these experiences. Can you talk a little bit about why that sort of structural comparison was the one that started to frame the research? Uh, Well, yeah. So, um, the the thing that uh, one of the things I was really interested in in trying to do um, in the early stages of this project was just to understand how this problem came to be named and what was it being named as. Um, and as I you know was doing research in different parts of the world, you know, because I as a quota researcher, I also did like cross cross regional work. Uh, that's always been really important to my. Um, sort of approach to uh, academic research. Um, but I, uh, I discovered that it really, these naming efforts really had uh, parallel origins across different parts of the global South. Um, the first area that I, I came to be aware of was in Latin America, because as I was starting to do work on this topic, uh, there were a number of Latin American countries that were, including country Mexico, where I was doing research on quotas, where there were bills being proposed to deal with this issue they called political violence uh, and harassment against women. Um, and 
I, you know, sort of tracing it back, I found out it was uh, started in Bolivia, and then you saw, you know, uh, you know, four or five, six, and you know, seven countries adopting, you know, um, various initiatives uh, that were recognizing the issue of political violence and harassment against women as a specifically gender gender based uh, form of violence. Um, but then as I was sort of exploring the topic, I discovered a, a number of publications from the mid 2000s that were from a group of, um, uh, uh, say, uh, sort of a network of female politicians in South uh, Asia. It was organized by a group called uh, South Asia Partnership International, which works in Nepal, um, but also with uh, offices in India and, and Pakistan. Uh, and Bangladesh and other places uh, in the region. And uh, they were calling it violence against women in politics. And it was interesting because the way they were sort of um, approaching the, the topic was that it was a specifically South Asian problem uh, and something that really uh, was sort of unique to, to the region. Um, so they didn't seem to have any sort of awareness about what was going on in Latin America, although it was at the same time. Um, and then finally, I, I had the opportunity to go to Kenya uh, with a grant, um, and I was talking to a number of organizations there where the issue had also been uh, been around. And I, I realized that it had emerged through an election, a very contested election they had in 2007, which spilled out into violence in 2008. Um, and they were calling it uh, electoral gender-based violence. So here you have like three completely, you know, different parts of the world, right? But all the global South using slightly different words, but it was really about the same issue. It was about women being targeted as women, as actors in the political uh, political sphere. Um, and so as I was sort of like coming to, to think about this, um, you mentioned, you know, Joe Cox, that was in 2016. Um, at the same time, we saw... Uh, you know, uh, the U.S. presidential election, which was full of examples of sexism and misogyny. Uh, there were also um, in France, which is another country that I, I also study quite a bit, uh, a huge uh, sexual harassment scandal came out then, a huge public debate. Um, and it really sort of seemed to be a moment when um, more and more women in the global north were also starting to talk about this, not in a sort of group-based collective way as they had done in the global south, but with these individual uh, experiences. Um, but because different practitioners around the world had been talking about in the global south, right, they were like, wait, okay, they started to make those connections themselves that actually this is sort of showing that this is something that is um, just like violence against women. Um, which is a universal global problem. It affects women at all ages, all ethnic groups, all socioeconomic classes. This is the same thing with violence against women in politics. It affects women around the world. Um, and it, it's something that we shouldn't see as being a problem only in one particular part of the world. Um, and so that I think is, is, I think a huge part of building the global momentum to recognizing it as global, a global problem. Um, and I would just say, you know, off in the early days and talking about this issue, people say, well, we, you know, it's not really a problem in the United States, but, um, 
uh, I'm just really delighted to tell you that um, a couple of months ago, there was a resolution introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives recognizing violence against women in politics as a global phenomenon um, and calling on the U.S. government to uh, recognize it uh, as a problem in both the U.S. and and abroad. Um, so I think that it's really, um, we're just sort of seeing a deepening of an understanding of this as, as something that um, is a shared experience amongst many politically active women around the world. And and you brought up um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as an example, but can you, and, and of course we already mentioned Joe Cox who was murdered, but can you talk about the spectrum of what the women that you've spoken to and, and, and who have been, you know, sort of coming together in community or in, in groups, what they're talking about in terms of this kind of violence against women who are in politics, where, what they are defining as the violence against them. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, feminist researchers have, have um, often thought about uh, violence against women as existing on a on a continuum or on a spectrum, um, arguing that we shouldn't just think about it as as physical violence or physical force, which I think is the more I say everyday uh, common understanding about what violence is. Um, so in in my book, I adopt uh, a feminist uh, lens uh, to say it's not just about about physical forms of, of violence, um, but obviously that's part of this phenomenon as as well. Um, so in the in the book, I talk about five different types of violence. Um, so physical violence we could include under that things like uh, murders, right? Joe Cox. Um, Somebody like uh, the Brazilian uh, politician Marielle Franco, who was uh, was killed um, a few years ago. She was a, a local councilor in Rio. Um, we could also put under the category of physical violence things like uh, attempted assassinations. We could think about Malala Yousafzai, the very famous uh, uh, girls' education um, advocate. Um, so forms of, I think, physical violence are definitely included under uh, under this um, sorry under this umbrella. But I think the other forms of violence are, are more common. Um, so the, the second type I talk about is psychological violence. And psychological violence is something that's recognized in international treaties on violence against women, um, which is really about, you know, um, uh, things like uh, uh, death threats, uh, rape threats, online, um, online attacks against women in, in politics. Um, so that's the form, I would say, um, the Interparliamentary Union did a study. They found that over 80% of the women they had interviewed had experienced a form of psychological violence like that. Um, uh, a third type is sexual violence. It's also a form of violence against women or recognized international treaties, um, which is sexual harassment. Uh, uh, and also, you know, rape, obviously, so other forms of sexual assault. Um, and sexual violence is interesting. It, it was one of those uh, topics that is, I think it's been really difficult for women to, to speak up about. Um, in the Interparliamentary Union's report, they asked women, had they personally experienced different forms of violence? And then did they know someone else? Did one of their colleagues, so they witnessed it happen to one of their colleagues, you know, that form of violence? And all the forms of violence they look at, it's really relatively similar what they experienced and what they've seen happen to other women, except for sexual violence. Um, it's a pretty big gap where, you know, maybe one in five will say they personally experienced, but one of three would say, well, I know what other woman had happened to, right? So even in a system where, you know, a moment where they 
can speak up about it. I think there's a hesitance to, to talk about it. Um, but that was a study that was done in 2016. Uh, in 2017, it was the beginning of the Me Too movement. Um, and we see a lot more uh, discussion of that, that issue around, uh, around the world. Um, the fourth type I talk about is economic violence, which is a, a form of violence that's increasingly recognized in laws around the world and uh, the Council of Europe's Istanbul Convention. Um, and that's really about using various forms of, um, you know, sort of uh, economic uh, use, ac access to economic resources as a form of uh, coercion or, or intimidation. Um, so these are things like uh, property destruction, uh, not just destroying women's campaign materials, but also, you know, setting fire to their houses, you know, vandalism of their offices uh, meant to really intimidate them uh, from doing their political work. Um, and then the fifth type of violence is one that I, I developed in in the book. It's it's not you know not yet widely recognized, um, and I call it semiotic violence. And this is something that came out of the just the inductive um, you know inductively from the materials that I was looking at. Um, so semiotic violence is a little bit different from uh, the other forms, but I, I think you know intuitively to me, I think it might be the most common form of violence against women in politics. And this is about using words, um, images, body language, even to send a message that women uh, are, are illegitimate uh, actors in the political space. Um, so these would be things like, you know, photoshopped images uh, spread online about, uh, you know, with women in very like highly sexualized uh, positions. We could think about deep fake videos that make women look like, um, you know, there were some deep fake videos of, uh, of, of Nancy Pelosi where it looked like she was slurring her words, right? So that like just making women look like they're incompetent. It's, and it's not so much about sending those vid videos to the women in the images, you know, to Nancy Pelosi, but it's really about trying to sort of plant um, or exploit, you know, predisposition to think that women aren't legitimate, women aren't competent, they're not qualified to be political actors. Um, and so that's a, a fifth type of violence that I, I talk about. Um, and I think, you know, from all those examples, you can see that if we just focus on physical violence, that really only gives us a very small you know, uh, lens at which to sort of recognize this as, as a problem that affects women uh, around the world. I was really fascinated by the fifth type, as you say, that you developed because I was intrigued by the idea, not only of the sort of concept of semiotic violence, but also how prevalent it is. I mean, as you note, it's it's sort of, you know, sort of using words and images and even descriptors um, and, and asking the questions of women that are not asked of men in particular ways um, in politics that really sets up a different sort of situation and often undercuts women's capacities or it seems to try to undercut women's capacities. I, I know there's a lot of work that's been done in you know gender and politics to look at this kind of um, comparison um, between men and women in politics, and I I really appreciated that sort of fifth um, bucket that you defined um, in your work it was really fascinating. Um, I I did want to also ask you uh, because you do sort of get into this area that you you're talking about the violence against women in politics. But you also note that there are others who are um, connected, like journalists 
um, or activists who also experience some of this. Can you talk about some of the distinctions between these particular groups um, and how that figured into your research? Um, yes. So um, this is another one of the, um, I think, things that I'm trying to do in this book, which is that, you know, I came to this topic and I think most examples I've been using, unfortunately, so far um, in this discussion, it, it relates to women uh, in elected political positions uh, or appointed political positions, women who are politicians. Um, but one of the things that just sort of came up, I, I started to become more and more aware of was that there were parallel campaigns going on uh, during the same time period, focusing on women in other types of political roles. Um, and the first are uh, campaigns on violence against women, human rights defenders, which is something that uh, emerged, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when, you know, women, uh, women's activists, women's human rights activists uh, argued that women's rights are human rights at the Fourth World Conference uh, on Women in Beijing in 1995. And so there was this, uh, you know, effort to say that people who focus on women's rights are also uh, people who defend human rights. And so, um, women, you know, as it became more visible and started to, as as human rights defenders, really uh, also started to face very gender-based um, forms of, of attack that weren't uh, simply, you know, the same that human rights defenders were men or who who focused on more traditional, you know, human rights issues faced. Um, and so there's a been a whole network around documenting violence against women, human rights defenders, collecting data on the question, um, empowering women uh, with tools, right? So, um, groups talking about integrated security, that it's not just about wearing bulletproof vests, right? But like all different thinking about security in a more holistic uh, sort of way. Um, and this is a, a discussion that's really gone in parallel to the violence against women in politics in the sort of politician sense. Um, and then there was this third group who were um, working in uh, the journalism space where uh, people who thought about violence against journalists uh, also recognized that women who were journalists were increasingly facing uh, gender-based attacks, especially issues of sexual violence, uh, potential sexual violence in uh, in the field. You know, both war reporters, uh, but you know, reporters in, in all different uh, all different uh, kinds of spaces and different different topic areas. Um, and so, one of the things that I try to argue in this book is that we should adopt a definition of violence against women in politics that doesn't just think about formal politics politicians, but thinks about women in, in a wide variety of political roles. So it could be voters, it could be activists, it could be party members, right? Um, really women who are trying to participate in politics in some sort of way, right? And so we can think about journalists also in the sense because they are about contributing to public discourse. It's about freedom of expression um, as well. Um, and so one of the the things that I think would be great would be sort of the joining of, of forces, right, to recognize some of the continuities um, and shared challenges in these sort of separate uh, separate campaigns uh, to bring light to um, to this issue, because it's really at the heart, it's all the same. It's about women's ability to participate um, equally, <laughs> fully, safely um, in in debates the way that that men uh, men can do. And, and I wanted to also ask you, because you, you note in the book, just as you were just talking about sort of some of the, some of the um, 
responses to uh, like the human words, the human rights workers that the, the book itself is, is also not just a scholarly undertaking, but also one that is um, suggesting practical ideas for responding to this. Can you get into a little bit of that, which is often part of, of the feminist um, undertaking? It's, it's not just thinking, but it's also doing. Um, and, and what you, you know, what you sort of started to carve out as possibly ways to help with this problem. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's just, it was actually quite fascinating. A, a very early paper that I wrote with um, Juliana restrepo who is one of my graduate students, um, we wrote a really early paper about violence against women in politics, and the last section was on solutions. And one of the reviewers just said, I don't understand why that's there. Like, we're political scientists, we don't, you know, really care about solutions or ways to fix it, you know. And I think that she and I were like, well, but we've just spent all this time talking about this problem. Um, wouldn't you want to, you know, know how people are trying to fix it? So um, it was very important to me that in the book that I also spent a good amount of time, you know, I, I do a lot of, you know, classifying and typologizing, right? So underneath physical violence, there are like different types of physical violence, right? Under psychological violence, different types of psychological violence. Um, but I devoted the second part of each of those chapters to you know, emerging solutions, right? So what do we see in terms of potential solutions to physical, right? To, to psychological, to economic, right? To semiotic violence, et cetera. Um, as well as I have a chapter later in the book that looks at cross, uh, cross-cutting solutions, solutions that try to c- cut across those different, you know, tackle multiple forms of violence at the same time. And, you know, it's actually, um, you know, despite, you know, the newness of this issue, there's actually quite a, a wide range of, of solutions that have uh, have emerged around the world. And uh, I think it's so important, especially at this early stage, to really share it and to, you know, shed light and learn and, and to try to help help one another. Um, so this was a book that I wrote for academics, but also very much for practitioners, right, people out in the field who are, um, you know, living, living this, you uh, uh, these experiences and want to know what they can do to take, you know, to, to do something about it as well. And and in terms of that, have you had responses from individuals um, who've read the book, who are practitioners or who are academics about the proposals for, you know, solving some of these problems? Yeah, well, so um, since 2015, I've actually worked very closely with the National Democratic Institute, which is a, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., that uh, it does a lot of ex- uh, electoral assistance, uh, democracy work um, around the world. Um, and so I've worked very closely with their gender, women and democracy team t- on this issue. So um, the, the book is, you know, uh, partly, you know, uh, driven by some of my exchanges with with them. Um, there's also been so many practitioners working on uh, on this issue um, over the last, you know, uh, five to ten years, especially in UN Women, um, in the Organization of American States, uh, the Commission, Inter-American Commission of Women, the International Feder- Foundation. Um, uh, for electoral systems. There's a lot of uh, practitioners who've been working in this area and um, they have, you know, come together with each other. They've uh, come together with practitioners. Um, I've been to a lot of events where, uh, you know, um, female politicians, leaders um, from different parts of the world have come together to talk about, you know, give testimonies of their their experiences as well. Um, and so this, I think, is uh 
you know, a type of project that really emerged from interchanges between um, academics and, and practitioners. And so we are sort of trying to work together to try to, to help um, sort of push, push the uh, agenda forward. Um, and so I, what I did in the book was not to talk about hypotheticals, but actually just give some examples of like, oh, you know, there are legal reforms. Did you know there are legal reforms, right? And talk a bit about some of the laws that have been um, passed uh, to, to deal with this issue. Um, or, you know, more informal strategies developed by, you know, female party members to to deal with issues of sexual harassment, right? Or online, uh, online abuse. Um, and as much as I could, I'd also try to kind of give the Tell it in the first uh, first person um, some of the accounts that uh, women have given about these different strategies, and um, and so I felt like it was really important to to really be grounded in the actual experiences of, of things that uh, have already you know been, been deployed and sort of emerged from the ground um, out of efforts to to deal with this problem. And you also have a website that's connected to this book. Is that correct? I do. I do. And so that was very much uh, something that I felt was really important to, to do that, um, to recognize that this was going to be a book that was published at, like a finite moment in time. Um, but that this was a discussion that was very much ongoing, right? There's ongoing debates, there's ongoing data collection, ongoing you know, experiments in practice. Um, so I set up a, well, I'm calling it a companion website to the, to the book at VAWpolitics.org. Um, so there, you can find uh, a list of all, you know, existing, as far as I know, uh, practitioner and academic uh, uh, reports and publications. I'm constantly adding to that uh, because it really is a very fast-moving field. Um, also have links to, for example, um, recent international, uh, you know, declarations or uh, legal reforms, um, you know, to also just give some, uh, some help, right, just to give some examples of things that can be, can be done. Um, I also created a uh, related Twitter account um, at VAW Politics, which um, I tried to, you know, share, you know, news items uh, as well as to sort of promote the the research that's come uh, come out, you know, come out is coming out on this topic. Um, So, for example, last two weeks I've had been retweeting a lot, tweeting and retweeting a lot about the U.S. Capitol attacks and, um, you know, the sort of dimensions of violence against women in politics that were were present uh, then. And, you know, some of the uh, the accounts, the testimonies, the the, the analysis um, coming out of, of that particular event as well. So it's really, those are meant to keep, keep things up to date, right. And keep that conversation going. And, you know, also to bring in other people's voices, it's not just me who's working on this, but a lot, uh, you know, a whole community of people who are contributing to our, our knowledge on this topic. Um, and so that's a place to go to, to learn more about that work as well. And I will definitely link to those two places in the blog post that goes along with the with the um, podcast. Um, but I wanted to ask you now, Mona, what is it that you're working on following up to this big project and your hands-on work that you're doing with um, a number of institutes and with the website? Have you moved to a different zone or are you following a similar research stream? 
Um, yeah, so I uh, so I've been working, as I mentioned, with the National Democratic Institute for a long time. Uh, 2016, we uh, launched what we call the Not the Cost campaign. Uh, to stop violence against women in politics, um, not the cost being sort of rejoinder to the idea that violence is just the cost of women's participation. It's about denormalizing, uh, accepting it as, as something that's just par for the course. Um, so we're currently working on a sort of um, a, an updated call, global call for action, which is what we launched in 2016, uh, five years later. So that will be coming out in uh, in March, um, and you know, in connection with the UN's Commission on the Status of Women meetings that happen uh, that you know around March every year, um, I've also been working on the concept of semiotic violence uh, because I think there's a lot more to say on that issue, um, and to sort of link it uh, more broadly to to some thinking about this. Um, and the third thing I'm working on has to do with um, thinking about violence against women in politics as in historical. Que- um, in a historical way, um, and specifically in terms of violence against women and suffrage movements. Um, and it's just something that, because I happened to be writing this book during some of the uh, suffrage centennials, uh, the US uh, and the UK, I really recognized that quite a number of things that women experienced at that time were also forms of violence against women in politics, the five types that I, I mention. Um, and so I uh, just been sort of dipping into that, but I think it's um, an example that really shows us that this is about resistance to women's political rights uh, and as a question of women's citizenship. And I think that there's so, there's so many more things we can do with this, with this topic uh, going into the future. And I'm really excited to, to pursue those. Well, I would be happy to welcome welcome you back onto the New Books and Political Science podcast when any of those projects are completed. So um, I, I would love to speak with you again. Thank you for joining me today, Mona Lena Crook, author of Violence Against Women in Politics. This was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. I assume it is quite available at the Oxford University Press website. Um, any place else that you might want to mention? Uh, uh, just really anywhere that books are normally uh, normally found. Uh, it's also available as as an ebook in addition to uh, soft cover and hardcover editions. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mona. Thanks so much, Lily.